May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. True story, perhaps you heard it, of a young man named Ethan, age 16, became enormously intoxicated, decided he was going to drive home. He had already lost his license through numerous um, uh, moving violations, and so he he had no driver's license. His license was suspended at the time. Um, He had seven teenage passengers in his car, and um, he's driving down the road. Uh, along the side of the road, a, a car had broken down, and somebody had stopped to help this stranded motorist. In fact, several people had stopped. So there's the stranded motorist, and there's a, a woman with her young daughter, and then a youth minister from a nearby church, all standing around this um, this car that was broken down and trying to, to get this uh, some driver some help. And Ethan is driving down the same road. He um, is going 70 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour zone. And he loses control, and he, um, he slams right into this group standing on the side of the road. Um, the, the motorist, uh, the stranded motorist was killed. Um, the woman and her daughter were killed, and the youth minister was also killed. So four people died. All the people in Eden's car survived. Um, the community was outraged. The, uh, the local prosecutor sought to try him as an adult and wanted him to go uh, get the maximum sentence, which was 20 years in prison, um, a few months later, he, Ethan goes to court for vehicular homicide. His, um, his defense was this, that he had grown up in a home of privilege. He had, been, um, he had been treated so well throughout his life. He was used to um, getting everything his way and, and that he had no idea about the consequences of his actions. Therefore, his actions and his, um, his punishment should be mitigated because... He was incapable of understanding the severity of what he had done. As ridiculous as that sounds, it worked. Uh, The young man was sentenced to a treatment program for alcohol addiction and given a um, a probation and never was required to to go to prison or spend any time in jail. Um, This is sort of the flip side of the inner city tactic, right? You know, that someone had been raised in a very uh, difficult environment and they had been uh, treated harshly and because of that, their actions need to be uh, understood in light of that, the, those, those you know, conditions of growing up. For him, for Ethan, though, life had been too easy. It had been too good. Therefore, he was incapable of understanding the consequences of his actions. The worst part about it was that he showed um, no signs of, uh, of admitting any part in the wrongdoing, of acknowledging what he had done, or worse, even any remorse for what had happened. And all of the world looked on in shock. Many of you perhaps remember this story from the news channels. It wasn't that long ago. And I thought about that as I thought about how every person that I've ever met, or that perhaps you've ever met, at some point has this inward kind of, uh, of angst about the unfairness of life. You know, that, that this, isn't, this just isn't fair. This isn't right. This is unjust. You, you've heard children say that... that this isn't fair. And you know what you say to them. You know what you say. Life isn't fair. That's what you say, right? You, you get used to it. Uh, get used to disappointment. That's why I make my children, to, um, you know, from the earliest age, like the Cleveland Browns. It's a, it's a lifelong love affair with disappointment, right? 
You kind of embrace that. You understand what it's like, the injustice of the world. We all know that, right? We have this sense of, uh, of life isn't fair. But there are times, there are times when something is so egregious, so, so wrong, that we just cry out, something has to be done. I mean, the horrors of slavery, um, the human trafficking that's going on in the world, the violence in cities, drive-by shootings, Islamic terrorism, these things make us cry out inwardly, this isn't right, this is unjust, this isn't fair, something has to be done. We hope that sooner or later, somehow, someone will come along and sort of set some things right that are when they are wrong. If you lived in ancient Israel at the time of Jesus, you would have had a sense of what, especially if you were a Jew living in Israel at the time of Jesus, you would have had a sense of what this angst would be like, um, about this longing for justice. It's hard for us to imagine. Most of us here have grown up in, in this culture that we live in now. We, we live in what is arguably the richest, most powerful nation in the world, perhaps that the world has ever seen. Uh, we, we live in a, in a place where, yeah, there are people who would like to do us harm, but there are, we have such a, a, a massive amount of protection around us that no army dares to try to breach our borders, right? No, no planes fly over and would dare to try to drop bombs here. No navy wants to sail within, uh, you know, our waters. This is, this is, you know, arguably the most protected area the world has ever seen. And this is the world we grow up in. We, we kind of have taken a lot of this stuff for granted. We even fought in two world wars and didn't fight them on this soil. You know, we fought them somewhere else. So this is this is sort of the, the the culture that we've grown up in. But if you have ever known, or if you happen to have been a person who grew up in another type of culture, if you grew up in another society where things weren't like that, I mean, you could ask uh, ask some people who um, who were Polish or French or Dutch who grew up when the Third Reich had invaded their country and, and had taken um, you know, th- those nations hostage. Ask them what it was like. Ask somebody who, um, who was black from South Africa under apartheid what it was like to live under a culture of oppression and violence. Ask Christians who are living in Syria or Iraq right now what it's like to live under the oppression of, of ISIS and, and the type of violence that exists there. If we knew what that was like, if if we could feel that, we would have, I think, some sense, not even a complete sense, but just a modicum of some understanding of what it was like to live under Rome in the Second Temple Judaism period, the first century, what we call the first century. Even you read the history books, you you read about this thing called the Pax Romana. Does that sound familiar to you? Nod like this if you've heard of this. (laughs) The Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome was not peaceful unless you happen to be Roman. I mean, even their own historian Tacitus says this, that the Romans go in, they rape, pillage, and plunder, make a, make a, a country into a desert, and then call it peace. <laughs> they create a desert and call it peace. This is what uh, their own historians said about the Roman uh, military. And, and so you could understand the feeling of, of, being, of being a Jew living under the oppression of Roman domination and praying daily, Oh God, come save us. Come set us free. Get us out from under this this fierce, powerful 
violent, brutal, godless regime. And then along comes this guy, this preacher. And he starts preaching about, and flip through the gospel sometime, the kingdom of God. The very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, this is it. This is what we're looking for. We're looking for God's kingdom to come down and rule on earth. But for the, for the people, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean heaven. It doesn't mean angels and streets of gold and and cherubs, as lovely as all that would be. It means a restored world like the Old Testament, David and Solomon, and, and mighty Israel in the midst of a of a world that that couldn't understand how they could be so powerful. This is what they wanted: a, a world where where Israel had its own king practiced its own religion, lived its own culture, not under the thumb of someone else like the Romans. And Jesus, strong rhetoric. He he was not even afraid of the aristocracy. He would call them hypocrites to their face. And he would do these powerful things like there was a a guy who was blinded and he healed him. And and there was another blind person and he healed him. And and there was somebody who was sick and demon-oppressed and epileptic in their seizures and, and he healed them. And there was this time where there were thousands of people on a hillside and he fed them all with a boy's lunch. I mean, this guy has potential, doesn't he? I mean, this is, this is a good fellow. We could, we could really get behind him. He's sort of the ultimate, the ultimate political weapon. We could, really, we could really use a fellow like this. And on this day, the day that we read about today, he's on his way to Jerusalem the center of government, the center of of the sort of the Jewish aristocracy, the center of the Roman courts, the place where God used to have an address, you know, he used to live in the temple down there. This is where we used to, this is where things happen. He's been kind of hanging around the edges, not going into Jerusalem, but now, today, Jerusalem is on the travel schedule. I've seen the itinerary. We're going to we're holding a press conference in Jerusalem this afternoon. This is what's going on and people people are excited in this environment. A sign of hope. A movement has begun. A figure has been identified in Jesus. Something is going to happen. The only thing is he's been really reluctant up to this point to sort of you know, to step up and be the kind of king we need him to be. You know, he's, he's been a great preacher, he's done some great miracles, but he just, he just seems so reluctant to kind of be the king. Until today, you saw what happened. He calls his friends over. He says, listen, there's a buddy of mine in town, this is my version, there's a buddy of mine in town who has this, he has this little colt, this little donkey colt. It's never been ridden by anybody. Go get it. If he, if, he, if he balks to say, I need it, and he'll let you go. And that's exactly what they do. They go, and, and the guy says, what are you doing? And he said, well, the Lord needs it. Oh, oh, of course, by all means, take it. And they take it. And you know word got out. Luke doesn't tell us. But word got out, didn't it? I mean, you've been in that meeting, right? <laughs> you know that meeting where, um, where everybody says, all right, now listen. Nobody say a word about this. And you get home and there's three phone calls. People are like, wow, I can't believe what happened to that meeting. Have you been to that meeting? Yeah, all right. This is what happened. Jesus asked for a new donkey. 
He asked for this young donkey that's never been ridden. You know, if you lived in the society that he lived in, here's what you would do. Every day you would say your prayers, God, restore Israel's kingdom. Every day you would you would read your scriptures. <laughs> you know, you'd, he- you'd hear them read, at least in the, in the synagogue. You'd be searching the religious writings, you know, people who would write stuff and, and circulate it around. Oh, get a little bit of this and you'd read it. And you would hear, when Jesus asked for this little donkey, you would hear this echo. This echo that would be so loud in your ears that would have come from Zechariah. Dr. Nettie read it just a few moments ago. Did you hear? Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, or Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. Your king, right? We want a king. He's coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Humble is he, listen, mounted on a donkey. Jesus asked for this donkey. He's going to do it. Now's the time. God's, his, his man has arrived. This is justice. Finally, we're going to have justice. Finally, things are going to be... Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the excitement, the giddiness? People taking off their clothes, you know, their, their, their coats, and they're throwing them on the ground. A makeshift red carpet. I mean, how awesome would this uh, chasuble be for a makeshift red carpet, right? I mean, this is Hollywood-style stuff, right? And they're excited and they're thrilled. And here he comes, riding into town. And people are shouting and acting like fools, happy. And this is God's man. Hosanna! Come save us, right? Blessed is he. It's not hard to get caught up in Palm Sunday. It's not hard at all, is it? I mean, we love the sort of political fervor that's going on here. This is, this is rich. This is powerful. Finally, God's man is going to come and he's going to save us all. It's all going to be, it's all going to be great. It's going to be like the golden days of the past. Everything is going to be wonderful. And that's what we always think, right? The next election, the next coup d'etat, if you happen to be somewhere else, the, the, next, uh, the, ne- the next movement that's going to come along. But it's always just sort of out of our reach. It's just always kind of beyond our grasp. Justice, full justice, never really comes, does it? We're always sort of disappointed and left with maybe next time. I wish sometimes that we were kind of church where people brought Bibles, not that they're better than us, (laughs) but I just wish we had had them so that we could look at something. Because if we had them, I would show you what happens in the very next part that doesn't show up in our lesson today. And it goes like this. This is in Luke 19, verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, so think about this. He's riding along, right? He's heading towards Jerusalem. People are throwing off their coats. They're, they're, they're waving palm branches. They're shouting. It's, it's pandemonium. It's excitement. It's, it's joy. It's festive. And he saw the city. Jesus saw it. And he began weeping. He's crying. Everybody else is partying. I mean, I think I saw a flask come out somewhere, didn't you? I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a, a, a riot of, of joy and excitement. And Jesus begins to weep. Not trickle tear, you know, uh, commercial Native American looking at, at garbage in the river. Not that little trickle tear. We're talking about, you've got to be 40 years old to understand that reference. He's, it's got to be this joyful, I mean, this is a... And then he hears Jesus sobbing. 
Would that you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only you had known. If only you had known on this day the things that make for peace. You missed the point. I thought they got it, didn't you? I thought they, I thought they finally understood who he was. And he's saying, you just don't get it, do you? You miss it. We live in a world where we, li- we long for justice, don't we? I mean, we long for it. We long for things to be right. I mean, sometimes just minor inconveniences frustrate us. I don't know. Maybe you have a kid who borrows the car. And brings it back with no gas in it. Not that I would know anything about that, but maybe you've kind of learned and had that happen a time or two. That's frustrating, right? Yeah, that's a little, it's annoying. Sometimes we watch the news and we get infuriated. We see someone who comes from a privileged lifestyle who says, you know, the hardest thing I ever had to do was, you know, uh, get up and go to breakfast. And because of that, I can't be held culpable for my crimes. That infuriates us. Sometimes we see things like war and violence and it nauseates us because it's so unjust, unfair. We know, we know the world isn't fair. But we still want justice and we still want things to be put right. We still want things to kind of, we want people to deal with with one another with gentleness and kindness, don't we? I mean, we want to see people who who treat one another the way they want to be treated and, and and are patient and understanding and forbearing. And if we had a world like that, you know what, you know what the biblical world, word for that would be? In, in Hebrew, shalom. In Greek, erene. And in English, peace. A world of peace. A world of peace is not just a world that's not at war. It's a world where everything is put back together, where things are put right, where there is justice and kindness and decency, and humility. This is shalom. And that's why we say it to one another right in the middle of the, of the service, right in the middle of the Mass. The peace of the Lord be always with you. That God would bring wholeness and, and fullness to life. And that you wish it for me, right? And also with you. If only we could have shalom. But I wonder, do we, even today, know the sort of things that will bring peace, God's peace, to the world? And we look for hope. But are we looking in all the wrong places? <laughs> are we looking in all the wrong places? If only you had known, Jesus said, the things that make for peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.